As has been mentioned already, how so thankful I'm sure each of us feel that we have been privileged to gather on this first Sunday in October, the first day of the week, in which we do so following the banner, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Matthew chapter 4 verse 10 reminds us. As we've come together today, so thankful are we certainly, our membership and visitors alike, that each of us can be here. And I hope that as we've sung these songs and we have uttered our sincerest prayers unto God as we have, that we also for the next few moments can reflect on a section of the Word of God, perhaps being challenged by these things that have occurred so long ago. You may have noted the reading was taken from 1 Kings 21. It is to that chapter I would invite you to turn in your Bible. We'll be referring to a number of the events that occurred in that chapter. But we'll, of course, be striving to extract some lessons and use them from the basis of New Testament application as well. In particular, some of these introductory thoughts, it would seem to me, are in order. I believe each of us are keenly aware of the pressure that so often is felt by you and by me, and yea, by Christians, as we strive in the midst of a society so often opposed to the things of God. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, as a final reminder about the nature of that statement, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Whether it be in the midst of the first century or in the days of 1 Kings 21, there is a sense in which the people of God, in the uniqueness and in the dedication and devotion that they live by, the world will not appreciate it. And so many times, pressures and forces and challenges and things that you and I still today find ourselves directly facing. But one of the things about all of that that still is true is the very title of the lesson this morning, Not for Sale. I'd like you to study with me for the next few moments about not for sale. What's involved in declaring not for sale? What does that mean and who perhaps have said it and are you and I in position to say it as well? As we develop that, may I suggest let's try it in the following way. First, let's cast a spotlight on the history of 1 Kings 21, revisiting the characters involved and the nature of what was stated about not for sale, and then we'll use the rest of the lesson to apply it to you and to me today. As we do all of that, the setting begins as follows. As we transition back, some names that are familiar to us from this chapter are names that you and I are so familiar with. Names like Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah and, yea, of course, the great Yahweh God of heaven. And as we think about each one of them, our development perhaps begins in the 16th chapter of 1 Kings. We certainly won't read all of those chapters, but let me just highlight a few of the features that come out of it. Ahab was the seventh king of Israel. We learn, of course, that he came from stock that wasn't always very godly. His dad, Omri, was also not very much of a, of a faithful or godly person either. And as you think about the nature of those statements, this unforgettable statement about Ahab himself is made. I quote from the section in 1 Kings 16, verses 3 and following. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Ahab worked the things of his life, the pursuits, the commissions, the particular matters that were of interest to him were opposed to the things of God. He did evil. It is for those kinds of things we notice that he married a woman named Jezebel. Now, among other things you and I know about Jezebel, she herself was a princess from a foreign land, particularly a Zidonian princess. And you and I know this immediately. She had it in her heart to serve Baal. She was a strong proponent of service to Baal. For that reason, she did everything within her power to encourage Baal worship in Israel. She didn't appreciate the worship of God. In fact, she didn't like it. I would point out, though, she knew about God. We're going to learn that a little later in the lesson this morning. But she was a strong proponent of service to Baal. At that point, you and I might immediately notice her husband alike, neither of them had an overwhelming respect for God at this point in their life. As you and I think about the nature of Israel and the kind of people that they were, all that brings us to note this. God didn't leave His people without a messenger, without a prophet, and Elijah labored so faithfully during this time, encouraging the people to withstand in the evil day and to always recognize the greatness of God. Elijah encouraged them time and again to realize that the God of heaven is in control. Even on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, the very scene here, remember on that mount, these prophets of Baal went about their activities and tried to call upon their God to consume the sacrifice, and it was a fruitless endeavor. Finally, Elijah prayed humbly and powerfully to the God of heaven, and fire came and not only consumed the sacrifice, but even the altar and the water as well. You may remember Elijah's strong statement. If Baal be God, then worship him. But if the God of heaven be God, then serve him. The choice was given to them. No wonder as we come near the bottom of that, we now cast a spotlight one more time on Ahab. Not only did he, of course, have a palace there in Samaria, but he also had a, another residence. It's quite often that those with enough money and prestige to do it, they have maybe more than one house, and Ahab had a different residence in Jezreel. It was here that we began to notice the man named Naboth because right next to his property, right next to this other residence of the king, was a vineyard owned by Naboth. A vineyard. As we continue that consideration, we notice that Ahab had a strong desire for that vineyard. He wanted it. He desired it greatly. He had his sights fixed upon acquiring it. And you'll notice as we develop that part on this slide, Ahab then made an offer to Naboth. Now, in fact, his offer in some ways was stated with a number of possibilities. He said, I will exchange your vineyard for another one. I'll give you another vineyard. In fact, an even better one than you've got. But I'd like the land. I'd like this vineyard that you have. On the other hand, if you would rather just sell it for the money, I'll be happy to, to pay you for it. Ahab was very agreeable in that sense. But you and I notice immediately that Naboth had a very firm answer. It was the lesson text in verse number 3. I'd ask you to read it with me again. 1 Kings 21, 3. And Naboth said unto Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. 
Naboth's answer was, with all due respect, it's not for sale. It's not for sale. And you may notice immediately the reasons upon which Naboth ventured that explanation. The Lord forbid it me, he said. It is not my personal preference alone. You and I may remember, very interestingly, Leviticus 25, 23, as well as a text found in Numbers 36, either one of them forbidding an Israelite to sell the bequeathed land that they had. It was to always remain not only in the tribe, but in that family. No wonder Naboth said, the Lord forbid it me. It's not just my preference. God forbids me to sell this. And thus Naboth, no doubt with some kindness, but nonetheless firmness, decreed that it's not for sale. Surely in light of those things, you and I now notice how the saga continues, for that's not the end of it. How did Ahab take the rejection? He didn't take it very well. I would ask you to notice very carefully verse number 4. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my father's. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned his face and would eat no bread. Naboth, you notice, acted rather immaturely, it would seem to me. You'll notice that he laid down on his bed, he turned his face away, and he pouted. He sulked. He wouldn't even eat. At this point, his wife enters the conversation. In the next verse, Jezebel espies his low countenance. She espies his sorrowful spirit and she asks him, What's wrong with you? Ahab is quick to reply, Naboth wouldn't sell me the vineyard. There's a piece of land that I very much want, but the owner Naboth refuses to sell it to me. I simply highlight in very simple fashion that Jezebel concocted a scheme whereby her husband could have what he wanted. He concocted, or she concocted, a rather evil ploy. To very briefly set it about, it went like this. Jezebel said, Ahab, aren't you the king? You can have whatever you want. She went about then the business like this. I simply highlighted it. She had some documents prepared, and she had the king's seal of approval put upon it. And these documents were sent to Jezreel where Naboth lived. The document said, you lift Naboth up in praise and you lift him up with a high degree of consideration, calling him in to question him. And then you have a couple of false witnesses come and they testify that he is a blasphemer against God and he's blasphemed the king and you take him and stone him. Well, Jezebel paid the people to say what she wanted them to say and she made sure that all the events took place as proceeded and sure enough, Naboth was called in to question him. These false witnesses were paid to testify against him. They said exactly what they were told to say. And sure enough, in light of the fact that he was accused of blasphemy and the two witnesses decreed it so, Naboth was taken out and stoned to death. Now I might say that's exactly what the law of Moses had said. Jezebel knew what the law of Moses decreed. Blasphemy was punishable by death. You had to have at least two witnesses and the means of death was stoning. She knew every bit of it. And we notice easily that everything happened just the way she'd planned it. You'll notice, though, that after Naboth was dead, 
these are the words now that we see in verses 13 and 14. Verse 14 says, Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And at this point, Naboth now proceeds to go get his vineyard. I'm sorry, Ahab proceeds to go and take the vineyard. As you and I come to the close of that situation, notice all the things that Jezebel had, had, had concocted. There was forgery. There was lying. There was perjury. There was false witnesses. There was even absolute murder by the decree of the God of heaven. As Ahab was going to take the land, God commissioned Elijah to meet with him. Can you imagine the interesting scene? Here's Ahab with a bit of excitement about to get the piece of land he had so much wanted. And just as he's going to acquire it and take possession of it, guess who comes by? Elijah. Now, Elijah and Ahab were not very good friends, as you can imagine, because one was a servant of the God and one was a servant of the devil. But as you can well imagine, an interesting conversation ensues. I'd like you to notice the language. Verse number 19. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? This is Elijah speaking to, to Ahab. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. A moment that no doubt started with such happiness and that started with such an intrigue. Now Ahab hears a very somber tone. Ahab, have you killed? And have you going to take possession of what's not rightfully yours? I've got a little news for you. The very place where dogs have lapped up the blood of Naboth, they're going to lap up your blood too. And as that scene goes onward, it leads us to note this. The punishment that was stated by virtue of the mouth of Elijah did come to pass. We won't get to that particular death until chapter 22 of the book, but nonetheless... I suppose that sets us up for the rest of our study this morning. Having rehearsed the setting, what about not for sale? What lessons from that might be so useful, beneficial for you and for me? As you begin to look at these features, I would ask you to start by observing this with me. A little section I've just entitled, Pressure. The pressures that came upon Naboth. Naboth had what the king wanted. Now remember, the king was far more powerful than he, at least in a civil sense. The king was far more famous than he in a civil sense. And yet Naboth had what the king wanted, and Naboth refused to sell it. The pressure that came upon him somewhat reminds us, I'm sure, about perhaps your situation and mine in principle today. There are times when others who apparently have great force and sometimes great influence, and they don't see things the way you and I do, not because of our personal preference, but because just like Naboth, the Word of the Lord is something you and I respect. And it's something you and I treasure, and we consider it important to live by it. You and I know so well, as you'll notice on that, and we can think about those that are younger as well as those that are older. The pressures to conform. In the schools, no doubt you and I recollect and appreciate pressures to drink socially. A number of buddies after school 
though they aren't old enough to have it, they find ways to get some alcohol and they just have a big time and they exert pressure to join them. And if you don't, you might be life dad. You might, in fact, have a name that will not soon wear away. That incident may be remembered a long time. There may be others who are going to do a little smoking after school. Or maybe later that night at a friend's house and they exert pressure. Don't you want to be like us? We're your friends, aren't we? Or maybe there are others who are reaching the point of wanting some sexual favors. They exert pressure on a young girl. Maybe a few years they're younger. And they often encourage others to participate. The pressures at that age, of course, can be mighty, but you and I can lift that veil and even look at those of us who are somewhat older. Society, it seems, through the avenue of the devil, will continue to exert pressures. It'll do so in such a way, at times, the pressure chamber can be a very tight place. May we think again about Naboth. Jezreel was a place that, again, was well known to the capital city. And the things that took place there were exceedingly well known. And this vineyard that Naboth had was something that the king desired greatly. And the king even pouted when Naboth wouldn't sell it. As you think about some of the latter statements upon that particular slide, I would suggest to you that Naboth's situation, at least in principle, seemingly occurs over and over and over again. I would hope that you and I, just like Naboth, would declare up front, not for sale. Naboth refused to sell his integrity. He refused to sell his character. He refused to sell his devotion to God. He refused to sell that which was ultimately and eternally the most important to him. But yet in our day, how tempting it is, and so many times we see it, individuals choose to sell when they ought not. You'll notice on this next slide, let us develop those thoughts with, with five brief lessons. Each one of them reminding us about not for sale. I've tried to begin by asking you to appreciate Naboth's initial statement there at the top. Naboth's integrity. Remember, here was Naboth and a gentleman who you and I don't encounter often on the biblical stage. We know very little on the whole about him, but aren't we impressed with his devotion and commitment to God? Even though the king opposed him, even though those princes that were with the king opposed him, even though Jezebel opposed him, he still didn't sell. What about you and me? So often, again, the temptation. I will remove myself from this pressurized situation. I'll compromise. I'll at least sell for the moment. Naboth didn't feel that way. Naboth might have argued, okay, I'll sell this vineyard to him, but I'll hold back a part of it. Maybe I'll sell him part of the vineyard. Naboth wouldn't sell any of it. None of the vineyard was for sale. That was his bequeathed land by virtue of the land allotment in the book of Joshua. And as per the decree of God, it was not for sale. I trust that you and I could feel the same. Our integrity should never, ever be for sale. It doesn't matter what the pressure is, what the bargaining price might be. Wealth, fame, notoriety, none of it ought to be any comparison to that which is faithful integrity before God. As you and I consider those things, aren't we reminded of the Lord's famous statement in Mark chapter 8? 
right in the midst of that book of Mark, we notice that Jesus unforgettably said in verses 36 and 37, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You and I might then and otherwise look upon Naboth's decision like this. Naboth felt his soul was more important than the price of the vineyard. And isn't it still true that your soul and mine is worth more than anything this world has to offer? It doesn't matter what the wealth or the fame or the other notoriety might be. Our integrity should never be for sale. Our devotion to God should never, ever be for sale. I realize in times of political discussion and in times of other matters, you and I might be pressured to sell, to compromise, to think twice. When all the while, may we remember, Naboth said not for sale. And that ended the discussion. When you and I think then about not for sale, it's an incredible thing, isn't it? You and I that are older as parents, we try to instill in our youngsters, don't ever let your character be for sale. Naboth's a good example of that. We don't know much about his parents. I would suppose, though, based on this, they too instilled within him a respect for the law of God and instilled within him an understanding of what the law of the Lord demanded. When you and I think then about Naboth's integrity, his estimation of righteousness was a noble thing, wasn't it? Do you and I then declare not for sale on those times when we too, like he, should make that statement? What about a second lesson? In addition to thinking about that, may I submit to you, there's maybe another motivation. Think for a moment about Jezebel and Ahab. Here were two, and primarily she schemed to lead to the death of Naboth. And ultimately by that, Naboth, of course, in being gone, Ahab had access to the vineyard. From the world's perspective, I suppose many would say, well, look, they got what they wanted. But don't ever forget how that saga ended. You and I hinted at it earlier, but remember the rather sad spectacle of their death. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab began in a great deal of pompousness and a great deal of confidence. He ultimately brought himself to demise. We oddly enough mentioned it in the Bible class this morning. On an occasion in which a battle ensued and Ahab felt sure everything was going to go well, he ended up dying as a result of that battle. An arrow struck him and blood was shed and the dogs came and licked it up just like Ahab, rather Elijah said that it would. We have to wait until 2 Kings 9 to see Jezebel's death, but it wasn't pretty. May we at least remember this, the way of the transgressor is hard. That's a statement of the Bible. Proverbs 13, 15 tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. I know the devil makes it look as though it isn't that way. He paints a picture for the time at hand that looks so appealing and so attractive, but never ever let us forget that just like we need to declare not for sale for our eternal benefit, may we understand if we did sale how terrible it is. The end is never good. Never is it good. I would ask you to think briefly about the death of those two. I mentioned a moment ago the fact of Jezebel's death being really a sad spectacle. You remember how finally some servants became strong and wise enough. They cast her out, out of a window, a fairly high window. She died when she hit the ground. 
And we remember that she had no luster, if you please, in the death. It wasn't as if she was buried gracefully. It wasn't as if she was given a high, pretty funeral. Remember, dogs licked up and ate whatever was left, and there wasn't much. Doesn't it remind us the way of the transgressor is hard? For a moment, just ponder what it will be like to stand before the great God of heaven at judgment and to try to explain or give any kind of an answer for failing to obey, for failing to act unfaithfully. In fact, as you look at it, you notice the way the transgressor is hard. What about a little third lesson? You notice that integrity of which we've spoken. Perhaps it's time to look more carefully at the great value that has. I've tried to state it like this. It's worth a whole lot more than just social acceptance. I know the world has a great deal of pressure trying to force us to think like the world. And that was Paul's reminder, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. Surely in light of that, look at just a few of these verses, and many others might have been chosen. In the 15th chapter of Psalms, we have this question, Who shall dwell in the house of the Lord? Who shall dwell in His holy hill? God, I'd like to know, who is it that is going to be privileged to ascend the holy hill and stand before you in a favorable and acceptable way? And He begins to say, those who are honest and those who in fact don't lie and those who are not given to dishonesty and those who are not given to other acts of ill repute, those who have a respectable character, those who are faithful to me, those who aren't willing to be bribed. Many things are stated in that chapter. But isn't it true that many of those relate directly to your integrity? What are you and I at the most basic level? Do we put on a show for others about us? If we are, we're no more than a hypocrite. We, to the very nature of our being, have to be devoted to the things of God if we're to be pleasing to Him. It's not just to please our neighbor, our friend, somebody else. We do so ultimately because we love the Lord and we want to be right with Him. Integrity is a critical part of that, isn't it? You'll notice in particular in Proverbs 28, 6, as well as in Isaiah 33. An amazing description about a particular time in Isaiah when the people of Israel themselves found a strong and hard lesson about integrity. God pointed the finger to them and directly told them, you do not have the character and integrity that you ought to have. And for that I'm going to judge you. How fearful it must be to try to explain hypocrisy before God. Seven times in Matthew 23, Jesus pointed the finger to the Pharisees of the day and said, you hypocrites. May you and I realize our integrity demands more of us than hypocrisy. It demands us to be faithful and true and desire the things of the truth of God always. Reminds us of Naboth a little bit, doesn't it? You'll notice as you come to the bottom of that, Many other verses might be listed, and I've asked you to consider briefly two examples. One of which, that gentleman named Joseph found in Genesis 37 and following. Joseph was, of course, that one who his brothers had sold into slavery. They, in fact, despised him. They hated him. And yet, as he came ultimately into Egypt and rose to stature, we find here was a man who was so keenly aware of integrity that it was not for sale. 
Even when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, even when others in the kingdom and the empire strove to, in fact, wage against him, not for sale was always Joseph's answer. What about Daniel? Perhaps one of the finest youths to ever walk this earth. Daniel, though himself but a young person, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came and captured Jerusalem and he was taken off into a foreign land. Daniel, it would appear his parents either were killed or they were left behind. He was separated from his family, separated from the temple, separated from the land he loved. It would have been awfully easy in a foreign land to say, God, you've deserted me, I'll desert you. And to go over and serve the gods of Babylon and to follow after their way. But Daniel wouldn't do it. His three words were these, not for sale. Even when the king encouraged him to eat of the food which he was not lawfully allowed to eat of, Daniel offered another opportunity and God in fact delivered him. Even when a lion's den was before him one more time, Daniel said, not for sale. He wouldn't sell his faithfulness. I hope you and I won't ever sell out either. Because you see, eternity hangs in the balance, doesn't it? As you look at that one, you'll notice that we come to a fourth lesson. I believe we would be a bit naive not to at least note this. When Naboth declared not for sale... At least in this world, it didn't go very well for him, did it? He lost his life because of it. He wouldn't sail, and Jezebel, in fact, concocted the scheme, and it led to his death. God didn't promise any of us that all upon this earth, even though we're Christians, that it would go without pain, that it would go without hardship, that it would go without oppression and difficulty. And that certainly wasn't true of Naboth either. He died. But what a glorious way to die, to die in harmony with God. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Maybe that part of this particular story isn't the most pleasant thing, but let's face it, what's more important? To die faithfully. To die in harmony with the truth. That's the way apparently Naboth left this earth. And you and I, it seems, could have then the confidence that in so doing, he left in a prepared way. I would submit to you all kinds of particular questions now arise. Many times in the Bible when certain characters did sail, think how bad it turned out. Maybe no example better than David. He committed adultery. He sold the very thing, his testimony to the truthfulness of God. He committed murder along the way. And look what happened to him. He never, ever lived down the difficulties that came to his family. We've often noted the problems his children suffered beneath, the fact he himself had to abdicate the throne for a little while, all because his son wanted it. God told him, the sword will never depart from your house. You see, when we sowed to the crop of the devil, it will bear fruit. It always does. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. In light of all those things, one final lesson, and then the lesson is yours. You'll notice at the top of this, 
everything it seems about this as a constant reminder to you and me. I know that we live somewhat short of 3,000 years this side of of when Naboth lived. But yet the same demand for constancy and devotion, faithfulness then is still demanded in principle of us. I would ask us to consider 1 Peter 3.16 among other verses that might challenge us along that line. There as the Apostle Peter wrote one final time that even those around you may respect your truthfulness and devotion and faith that even in the day of visitation, the day of that final momentous judgment, they might realize that which motivated you. Maybe we could do no better than to simply close our lesson with that same pair of verses that we noted earlier. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If you're not faithful today, let Naboth serve as a reminder that you need to be because to die unfaithful is too horrible to contemplate, too awful to imagine. As you and I analyze and examine ourselves today, May I say to you that the devil wants you to sail. But never ever forget the way he he rigs it or at least he schemes it. He will try his hardest to get you to sail low. But then when you try to buy back, it's much too high. Because you see on the day of judgment, then eternity is before you and there's no chance to buy it back. Not for sale. May you and I be not for sale. Our faithfulness, our devotion to God, our integrity... If that doesn't describe you today, if you've compromised, come back to your first love if you would. God wants you to. He begs that you will. If we could be of assistance by praying to God on your behalf, we'd be happy to do it. If though you've never become a Christian, you need to join forces with the great God of heaven. You need to be a member of His kingdom and a citizen in that great kingdom that shall be taken into heaven forevermore. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And if we could assist you to be baptized into Christ, we'd love to do that too. Would you please let us know the way we can assist you right now while together we stand while we sing.